0: Ahoy, Mighty's, I be Carla Napy with new books in East Asian studies. Arr I like grog. There's a parrot on my shoulder. I have adventures with scientists sometimes. Ahoy. Now you might wonder why I'm talking like a pirate, or at least attempting quite pathetically to do so um, in the introduction to this interview. And that's because of the importance of buried treasure to the story that you're about to hear. Now, this is an interview with Michael Wirt about his new book, Meiji Restoration Losers, Memory and Tokugawa Supporters in Modern Japan. This came out in 2013 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, you're probably wondering, what on earth does buried treasure have to do with Meiji Restoration Losers? And friends, you're just going to have to listen to the interview to find that out, because it has a whole lot to do with the story. It also has a lot to do with the history at the social, the textual, the physical, material construction of memory and memory specifically of and around and about a group of individuals and some larger groups or, or classes of people whose reputations suffered perhaps the most in the transition from Tokugawa to Meiji in Japanese history. So what the book does is it takes us through different media, um, different spaces, and different points of transformation in the ways that these figures were understood, were historicized, and were embedded into and used to construct a story about Japan and its modernity and its history more broadly. It's a really fascinating set of cases. It was a real pleasure to read, and it was very much a pleasure to talk with Mike about it, and not only because of the buried treasure, but buried treasure. So I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today to talk with Michael Wirt about his new book, Meiji Restoration Losers, Memory and Tokugawa Supporters in Modern Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Mike, and thanks very, very much for making time to be with me today. It's, re- it's really it was a pleasure to read the book, and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Mike, could you start us off by saying, as is traditional for the channel, just a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to start working on modern Japanese history?
1: Well you know unlike um, many others who are being interviewed, I have no great intellectual journey to begin with. you know I was just a cliche a karate kid in high school um, totally hooked into the you know orientalization of you know the uh, esoteric uh, Japanese and Asian culture and reading about Buddhism and such. Um, and then that led me to an East Asian studies major at George Washington University, um, which was an odd choice because it was mostly a policy economics type focus to all their courses. Um, then after graduating, went over to Japan on the JET program, which was is very common for people of my generation and spent four years over there, and just kind of... The first place I lived in a small village um, had a kind of an interesting history about this guy, Oguri, whom I knew nothing about, and I really didn't know anything about Japanese history. In fact, I only had one Japanese history course as an undergrad, and I think I got a B minus or a C in it, <laughs> which I can only admit now that I have tenure and the book is out, right? But uh, So it was not a, a great start. But So that led me to do a PhD in history, and probably the reason I chose UC Irvine was because I had just a great, you know, connection to the person who became my advisor, Ann Walthall. Um, And so that's where I studied. Actually, as an early modern historian, I'm trained, you know, as Ann Walthall is, uh, as a Tokugawa historian, not as a modernist um, at all.
0: That's actually really interesting, because the figure of the early modern, the um, kind of memory of the early modern and engagement with the history of the early modern is very much a trope that comes up in actually a few places in the book. So it's interesting to hear that that was how you were trained. So, the book that we're talking about looks, among other things, at the historical memory of the Meiji Restoration, a fairly, as you um, describe it early in the book, a fairly recent historical field. And it focuses on the construction of memory, of different kinds of memory, and we'll talk about that, around what you call the losers of the Restoration. So, you say early in the book, this is a book about losers, which is awesome. It's an awesome way to start the book. So, now that we've heard a little bit about how you came to the field, can you say a little bit about how you? Came to this particular topic? How did you come to work on this as your focus of research?
1: Well, it started off in the dissertation as really talking about Oguri, right? The kind of number one loser as I see him in the uh, Meiji Restoration. And as I was writing, well, doing research for the dissertation, I was at the University of Tokyo, where if you wanted to do research on the early modern side of things, they weren't really interested in post-World War II. So when I was there at the Shiryo Hensanjo, not the Shiro Hensanjo, at the Kokushi Kenkyushitsu, you know, the the Japanese history uh, research section, they were really interested in research I was doing on Oguri and 19th century Japan and this kind of thing. And that kind of influenced how I wrote the dissertation. And it was only when I got back from doing research in Japan that I started to do more work on memory and um, media studies type stuff. And so in the dissertation, that was kind of late in the game uh, for me. But that's basically how I got on uh, to the topic. Um, Ogudi was someone I encountered in the village where I lived as uh, an English teacher on the JET program. He was someone who was beheaded in the village. I lived, you know, a stone's throw away literally from where his he was decapitated. Um, so that's how I got interested in him in particular.
0: Great. And we'll talk a little bit, well, actually, probably quite a lot more about him as we get into the introduction and then the first chapter of the book. So this did start out as a dissertation-level project. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any major transformations, either in the way you were imagining this um, research as a set of questions, um, in terms of how you were answering those questions, or in terms of the narrative structure um, that shaped the way you were telling the story?
1: Sure. Well, the stuff about Ogudi, for the most part, is... didn't change a lot. Of course, you know, the writing changed a lot in the book about Oguri. But what changed the most was really expanding the project to look at more than just Oguri. I mean, I had started a little bit of that in the dissertation, but really to talk about losers, since Oguri isn't really well known, even in Japan, I had to talk about Inaosuke, the Aizu Fallen, the Shinsengumi, uh, groups of losers of the Meiji Restoration that everybody knows about. And that was for two reasons. One was uh, the kind of very crass reasoning of you can't sell a book if it's just about one person <laughs> most of the time. Um, but also a, a much more important reason, and that is to really look at the the greater context of even the memory about one person, you really have to look at the group of people around that person. Uh, and so although Goody is still kind of, Is the narrative thread throughout the book? Really, there's a lot more going on than Oguri, at least I think, uh, in the book. I would also say that I did a lot more with memory studies and media studies stuff. Now, I was trained as an early modernist and not as a memory studies person, and so there was a lot of, you know, learning from other people, a lot of reading in memory studies, and that meant a lot of Reading not only in memory theory, but reading a lot outside of not only Japanese history, but East Asian history. Because a lot of Japanese history, when people do memory, it's usually, uh, you know, a phrase in the title, but it's not, you know, what is memory and how it works is at the theoretical level, not Too in depth in a lot of books in in the Japan field. Um, And second, when people are writing about memory, they're usually writing about the Asia Pacific War, right? They're not writing about the 19th century. You know, so you always get stuff on comfort women or Nanjing Massacre, Yasukuni textbooks, and all of that is very important um, and influenced my writing. But when I wanted to write about these kind of mythic events of you know modern nation state and memory. I really had to go elsewhere to to German history, in particular in the work of Alan Confino, to kind of to kind of address larger theoretical questions that people um, in the discipline, rather in the field of East Asian uh, studies uh, are asking.
0: Now, one of these groups of people that animate the larger narrative of uh, memory and the construction of memory that we see throughout the book is a group of people, or perhaps a changing group of people over time, or, or multiple groups, that you call memory activists. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit, um, perhaps as a way of bringing us into the body of the book, about that concept? Who are memory activists for you, and in what way is this um, important or central to the kind of work that you're using the book to do?
1: Right. Well, and memory activists is a, is a term I get from, uh, Carol Gluck, who I think created the term, but essentially it's people who are involved, um, at an emotional level, especially at constructing and uh, constructing memory, but also rehabilitating, uh, the reputations of whomever they're fans of. Um, it's somewhat similar to, uh, Gary Fine in American history, he has this term uh, "reputational entrepreneurs," which is a bit wordy, um, but yeah. So those are people who would be uh, descendants, um, former colleagues, uh, politicians. You know, say a prefectural governor who wants to, you know, celebrate a particular person in order to celebrate the prefectural history or, or, or something like that.
0: And in constructing your story about memory and the different spaces and processes and practices of memory throughout the book, you also talk um, early here in the book, in the introduction, about the importance of looking in places, as you put it, where memory is unexpected personal connections, tourism campaigns, pop culture, to, take, to get glimpses of memory that are outside the sphere of political activity. And you talk about this as a way of differentiating what you're doing here from perhaps other approaches to historical memory in this mm-hmm. context. So can you talk a little bit about that, places where memory is unexpected, and how has that been central to the work that you're doing here?
1: Right. Uh, well, that's that's a big question um part of part of this is when we talk about how uh, famous individuals of the past relate to each other. We usually talk about it in terms of, well, this person was, you know, had this political view and this person had this political view. And so of course they didn't like each other or something like that. But oftentimes um, there are actual personal things at stake, you know, personal relationships, family, you know, neighbors, uh, you know, former teachers, things like this. Um that would make a lot of sense in our daily lives, right? I might not like someone, not because they're of a different political uh, view, but because, you know, they beat up my brother, something like that. That makes perfect sense in the present. But somehow when we look into the past, we don't take that into account enough, I think. And so part of my, uh, you know, saying, in you know, looking at memory where we don't usually find it is through personal relationships. Um, But also, I guess, it's in a way, how I think of ideology as being, you know, and and other people have said this, of course, uh, as being found in the everyday things, right? Um, so it's the things that you do that are mundane that are actually the locations of, of ideology. And in this case, it's those mundane things where the memory is the most solid. Um, for example, um, if you were to go to Japan today and and talk about Saigo Takamori, right, uh, the the head, the, the Japanese protagonist in the last samurai movie, right, for those who don't know who Saigo Takamori is, uh, people would automatically say, oh, yeah, he was a great guy. He was a great samurai, this kind of thing. Without even really thinking about it. And that tells you just how powerful memory is. You know, it, it's just kind of a mundane thing to assume someone is great for this reason or that reason. Um, but also in places, for example, buried treasure tales or in the search for a decapitated head, uh, why people devote so much time and money and effort to those kinds of things. That's also where we see memory and ideology mix, I think.
0: And so here is a key or a key touchstone um, for listeners that we should mention right at the beginning right now. This is not only a book about martyrs and memory and all these concepts that we're talking about. Stay tuned, listeners, and read the book as well, because it's also a book about buried treasure and treasure hunting and screws and manga and decapitated heads and all sorts of disgusting, interesting, fascinating things. So that's, that's one of the many really fascinating things about the book, and I am sure. And for listeners, I have promised Mike before um, we started recording that I would—I was super excited about this buried treasure aspect of the book. So we are Absolutely, going to get to um, the buried treasure, and probably more often than you might want to talk about (laughs) the buried treasure, because I am all about the buried treasure. But okay, so before we get to the buried treasure, um, let's talk a little bit more about these losers, right? So the losers of the book um, that we're referring to are men associated with the losing side of the Meiji Restoration. So that's um, playfully, as we're talking, as and kind of abbreviatedly, as we are using the term "losers," that's who we're talking about. These Mm -hmm. men associated with the using side of the Meiji Restoration, and especially those whose reputation suffered most. And you've actually mentioned um, many of them, Oguri, um, Inosuke, and to a lesser extent, um, Shinsen, the Shinsengumi and the Aizu Samurai. Mm-hmm. So the book uses Oguri as a kind of touchstone and common thread, but expands upon that account to talk about much more broadly this larger phenomenon and this larger um, group or set of groups of people that he is associated with and that he's a touchstone for. So the first chapter, in order to lay a foundation for what comes next, is really important. It's really necessary and this is where we learn a little bit more about who Oguri was. um, Who who was he? Who was he in context? What happened in the course of his story? um, How do you have access to that story? And what do we need to know about that to understand the elements that then get taken up and re-narrativized for very different reasons and very different purposes by very different groups of actors later on in the story. So we need to know about this in order to understand what comes later. So let's start um, in our exploration of the Losers um, right where you start off, which is explaining Oguri. Now, when we meet him, um, it is shortly before he has his head cut off, so we meet him virtually headless, but of course he has a head for his life. And let's talk about that head, and let's talk about the man that it's part of, Oguri Tadamasa. Who is he, um, and what do we need to know about him and about his background in order for us to understand um, what's going to come next in your argument later on in the book?
1: Okay. Uh, Oguri Tadamasa was a a bannerman, a hatamoto. So he was a bannerman is someone who's a direct retainer of the Tokugawa shogun. And not all of the bannermen were well off. Um, some of them were quite poor, in fact. But he was kind of a middle range, uh, from a middle ranged family, and he is in a family that would typically fill the bureaucratic roles in the Tokugawa shogunate. And he might have gone unnoticed in history had he not been assigned to the 1860 embassy to the United States. Um, Now, of the various embassies that are sent by Japan to the U.S., the 1860 embassy is the first one, but most people focus on the Iwakura, the Meiji period Iwakura embassy uh, in the 1870s. So he goes over, he comes back, he gets promoted, and he works in both foreign affairs and financial affairs, which for the Tokugawa shogunate are the two kind of most important um, uh, positions to be working in. Because all the problems that the shogunate have um, are either financial um and also having to deal with foreigners or having to deal with other domains that are dealing with uh, foreigners of course the shogunate has its own problems with you know political domestic uh, enemies but those are the, the two most important and so he served in both of those uh, capacities and sometimes he served in, in both at the same time That earned him a lot of respect and it earned him a lot of uh, enemies because he was a bit of a Tokugawa hardliner. That is to say, he is not someone who wanted to pursue detente with the emperor and the court nobles and the domains uh, to the southwest who were typically uh, ostracized politically. He was a, you know, said, look, the Tokugawa shogunate is in charge and that's the way it is. Um, And. Eventually, I mean, you know he is fired because of this. You know the last Shogun decides to capitulate against the Meiji Emperor's forces. Um, and he's he is fired. He retires to fief lands uh, out in the countryside where I had lived, in fact for a couple of years, um, and then is kind of haphazardly um, you know cut down by some of the Meiji forces.
0: Now, this place in the countryside, are you referring to this um, Gonda village?
1: Yes. Uh, what was Gonda village and Gonda is now part of Kurabuchi village, which is now part of Takasaki city in Gunma prefecture. Yes.
0: Great. And so um, this is actually another thing that I wanted to very briefly ask you about because Gonda village is, um, Becomes a very important space later on in the book, and it's introduced here um, in the first Mm -hmm. chapter for the first time, Um, and this becomes one of the Models or examples through which later on we're going to come to understand relationships and changing relationships between the national and the local in terms of the commemoration and the imagination and the reimagination of Oguri and other of these Meiji losers um, in different periods of time. So to get there, what do we need to know about Gonda village at this point, when um, Oguri is still alive, albeit briefly, um, in order to understand, or, or rather to have a foundation to understand how Gonda is going to play a role later on in the story. So what do we need to know about what it is now to understand what comes next?
1: Okay. Uh... Oh, at the point when Oguri is still alive. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so Gonda is... Part of the Oguri family real estate portfolio. Um, you know they have a, a, you know, not quite a dozen uh, villages that supply uh, resources, both human resources, you know, servants working in the city of Edo, what is now Tokyo, for the Oguri Oguri mansion, um, or sending lumber, you know, sending the uh, these kinds of things. And so Gonda isn't the biggest of them, but it's the one, for various reasons, seems to have the closest connection to the Oguri family. Um, you know, the head of the, the village headman of Gonda accompanied Oguri uh, on the 1860 embassy abroad, for example. And, you know, one of the memory activists today has a book that's called, you know, uh, is about this guy and calls him the first Japanese peasant to ever go overseas or something like this, you know, really connecting the historical memory, the local history. Um, so Gonda is, I would argue, the most important of the fief villi- villages in terms of personal connections between Gonda and the Oguri family. Although, having said that, the connections are thin. That is to say, like most bannermen who had fief lands, Oguri himself had never been out to any of his feasts, which was very typical, um, but still there were some personal connections.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much. That's really helpful for us to kind of lay this foundation for what comes next. Now there was massive violence that you're describing in the Kanto region in the mid-19th century. Uprisings became more violent, they were more, as you put it here, horizontal, so it wasn't just um, one class revolting against a class above them, but rather at the same level. And we see some of this, as you lay it out really beautifully in this first chapter of the book, reflected in Oguri's diary. Which brings me to the next really interesting thing, at least for me as a reader, about this chapter, and that is is your discussion of sources. So you talk here for us about the importance of Oguri's diary or diaries um, and the importance of local history sources in allowing you to reconstruct this picture of Oguri's life that may not be um, otherwise accessible. So can you talk a little bit about that, um, the diaries and local histories, any aspect of that rumination on sources and source material that you find particularly compelling that you'd like to talk about as it pertains to this
1: part of the book. Sure. Well, you know, this is, a, this is interesting because, as I mentioned elsewhere in the book, there, there is a historian who, back in the 1970s, uh, an American guy, who wanted to do a dissertation on Oguri in a very kind of, I guess, a very 1970s style, which is, you know, political biography of such and such. And his advisor in Japan told him not to because there were no sources to use, uh, according to him according to the advisor. And in fact, it's tricky because there are several parts of his diaries, uh, and account books that are left, um, that, that still exist. Most of them would be uninteresting. You know, they're just kind of the daily recordings of the comings and goings of visitors. Um, you know, there are no opinions on, you know, this meeting with the Shogun or anything like that. Um, You know, stuff we might not find in uh, European diaries of of a counterpart in the 19th century, for example. Um, The diaries and the account books disappeared for a while. You know, part of his death was that uh, the forces working against Oguri wanted to see if he had money. And so they sold off a lot of his possessions and people had a copy of it, and it you know was hidden for a while and then rediscovered in the 1950s. Um, so that's one source. The other source is oral history. I mean, there were people in the Meiji period who were interested in Oguri and went around and talked to people in the village who knew Oguri, both when he moved out there and the people who had worked for him in the, the city of Edo, etc. And so I kind of have to use uh, both of those cautiously, but uh, yeah make best with what I had.
0: Great. Now, each one of the chapters in a different way actually takes on this issue of sources and introduces um, both the a kind of question of or a way of thinking about source material that gives us access to particular kinds of memory and moments in the history of memory, um, but that also introduces some really cool new examples of different kinds of sources, some textual, some not, that um, help you shape this story and help us understand how you've shaped this story. And the next chapter is no exception. So chapter two presents the early historical memory of Oguri E and Tokugawa retainers, and it situates them within the larger frame of the writing of history, of what we might call historiography during the Meiji period. Now, Tokugawa retainers suffered in the Meiji transition, and you describe this and talk about this, but they also, after the transition, were kind of, as you show here, at least as it seems to this one reader, right, which is all I can represent, um, Mm -hmm. they also kind of took advantage of different media, textual media specifically, to try to reframe their experience and reframe the story. So you're showing here how after 1868, journalism um, was dominated by former Tokugawa men, who, as you put it here, wrote counter narratives of the Restoration, to kind of qualify to change the official version that, that was advocated by the Meiji government. And you mm-hmm. talked about newspaper sources being really important to this. So can you talk about um, this a little bit? What are, um, what's the nature of these newspaper sources and what's going on here with these Tokugawa men manipulating, or, and I use that not in a negative sense, mm-hmm. but you know, really kind of positively exploiting the media um, on hand in order to tell their stories the way they wanted to?
1: Right. Well, some of the first newspapers uh, that existed in Japan before the Meiji Restoration were by uh, men who, by samurai, written by samurai who were sympathetic or worked for uh, the Tokugawa shogunate. So they simply, you know, continued to use that media after the Meiji Restoration. Um the retainers, a lot of the retainers are essentially out of a job after the Meiji Restoration. Some of them actually continue to work for the Meiji government, but a lot of them go into fields that make use of their education, and journalism was one of them. So you do have a lot of ex Tokugawa samurai who are who are in Edo and then are in Tokyo um, and you know get into journalism through in various ways.
0: So how are they changing and re-narrativizing the stories of Oguri um, to help them and to serve their purposes? And how is that different from how he's being treated otherwise?
1: Well, what they're doing is they're saying, look, you know, the Meiji forces claim to be fighting on behalf of the people in the name of the Meiji emperor, um, and that what they're doing is a righteous thing. Um, But here they kill this guy, Oguri, who really wasn't doing anything wrong he wasn't actively resisting he wasn't you know building forces against the meiji government and oguri was also a brilliant guy who was good at foreign affairs and financial affairs and could have actually worked for the meiji government but um you killed him so that's essentially the story but the interesting thing and that's kind of a ho-hum point the interesting point is that they're using Oguri not to simply attack the Meiji government, but to attack each other, right? Because not all of the losers are friendly with each other. Um, and so they kind of attack uh, other former you know, losers who work for the government um, and are seen as selling out, essentially, you know, the Tokugawa legacy. I mean, one of the things you know, to, to use a quote used for Elvis, you know, dying was a great career move, right? And for Oguri, his death really purified him and he becomes a kind of empty signifier and people can use him to say, look, he was this pure Tokugawa loyal samurai and loyalty is something we're trying to, you know, promote in Meiji Japan. Um, and you, uh, fellow loser who went to work for the government or bad other losers are bad because, you know, vis-a-vis Oguri.
0: So you talk about this in this chapter in the context of what you call textually mediated historical memory, textually mediated historical memory. And you contrast that with um, the other thing that's happening in this chapter. Now, Oguri was killed in the Tokyo hinterland, as you put it, and there in the hinterland... His legacy remained in the realm of what you call communicative memory. So this is rumors and gossip and legend. And this is the kind of thing that you don't usually find in traditional historical sources. And it's also the kind of thing that gets us to buried treasure so <laughs> so can you talk about this idea of communicative memory what's going on in terms of the memory of Ogudi? um in terms of you know, rumors and gossip and what on earth is going on with buried treasure now we have to talk about this because kids <laughs> right. will be very angry with me i'm sure
1: Right. they made it this far right? exactly
0: um, communicative uh, memory
1: uh, well i think you i mean you described communicative memory very well and um so, I mean, the question is, well, what happens to the villagers, right? Are they punished? Uh, you know, of course, they're freaking out, right? Because O'Guri's presence was a tense one. They're nervous about him being around. Then they're really nervous when there's fighting going around in the village. And then the Meiji forces are still in the village, They're looking for, you know, if Oguri has any, uh, you know, gold coins because he's the last financial commissioner or magistrate, however you want to call it. So they expect that he has something and it's just not there. Um, So there's this kind of. Um, suspicion not only in the village but in surrounding villages and the surrounding areas that you know maybe he did still have some gold coins buried somewhere, or maybe he left it at one of the temples that he visited that was associated with his family, and that kind of leads into rumors about buried treasure. Now, the buried treasure rumor legend is you know as far as the sources are concerned aren't so. Thick uh, in the Meiji period itself. Usually, it's from the 1920s talking about the Meiji period. Um, but yes, this, people believe that somewhere, you know, in uh, Gunma, there were what would now be considered, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of gold coins, shogunate gold coins, buried somewhere. And that's one way that people try to, you know, cope with, you know, not only the the trauma of the violence that went on there. But as people who do a buried treasure theory, a term I would use, but it doesn't actually exist as a field. But what they say is one thing you can say is when you have these transitions to a kind of industrial society and people are becoming very wealthy very quickly, uh, there are rumors of buried treasure. And in fact, this happens during the French Revolution as well. So that might also be part of it.
0: And you're showing here in this book, and, and this is something that we'll follow later on and that you follow later on in the chapters, um, the way that this buried treasure legend actually you know, continues to exist and, and repeatedly resurfaces. So we see it not just in the late uh, 19th century, but in the 1930s and the immediate post-war in the 1990s. And it's this kind of longevity and resurgence of this buried treasure legend that also is responsible for uh, transformation and longevity of the Oguri um, story, narrative, memory. And so it's, it's a really, really interesting part of the story because buried treasure <laughs> and also other things. But, sure. you know, buried treasure. Okay, so we come to buried treasure again at the end of the next chapter. Um, but to get there, we need to go to the beginning of the chapter. So chapter three moves us from textual commemoration of Oguri and the commemoration in the um, frame of rumor and legend to focus on material culture. So this is a really interesting part of the book for anyone interested in materiality and objects and the lives of objects as they help us craft our stories and as they've helped others as well, craft different versions of history of the past. So this chapter explores how memory activists, and we talked about them um, at the very beginning, use physical objects and also use rituals and ceremonies to create alternative narratives of the Meiji Restoration. Now you talk about these objects and ceremonies as creating a powerful emotive discourse, and this is a phrase that you um, talked about a little bit earlier as well, that both built upon and also extended the textual project. So here we get material culture and material objects not as something necessarily separate from textual history, but as something that was intimately related to the history of text um, in really interesting ways. So, in this part of the book, we see a couple of things happening, and I'm going to ask you to talk about um, just some of the examples that you raise in this chapter. So, we see on the one hand re- the rehabilitation of restoration losers, and that involves, as you show it here, in figuring out what made them losers in the first place, right? And then creating an alternative narrative. And we also see the rise of local groups here. So, local groups who are using this as an opportunity to um, push forward various agendas that they have at the level of, of locality. So it's a really interesting chapter um, for the in the sense of you know its treatment of locality and local groups as well. So the chapter begins with some supporters of E trying to erect a statue of him in a Tokugawa park. And then you also talk about, um, you compare this example with that of Oguri, sort of looking at his commemoration in Yokosuka City, which is a naval port where Japan had um, important military victories during its 50th anniversary. So we've got these two examples and they're very different and they actually turn out quite differently. So can you talk about those examples for us? What's going on um, with the attempt to erect a statue of E? Um, what What do we need to know about that to understand why that's important? And then can you contrast that with what's happening with the commemoration of Oberty in this naval port and what's happening there?
1: Okay, um, well, this is kind of a time period we're talking here, you know, 1909 uh, with E, and, you know, up until almost the 1920s with Ogui, but these dates fall on, you know, anniversaries of the Meiji Restoration, anniversaries of when E is killed, uh, etc. And so quite innocently, maybe you could say, that in the case of E, people from his former domain decide, you know, we want to erect a statue to him, especially during the anniversary of the opening of ports at Yokohama, which many people, not everyone, but many people see E as being responsible for. So they want to, you know, open up... uh, First, they want to put a statue to him in Tokyo, and the reaction by the Tokyo government is a little bit of hemming and hawing. They, you know, they don't want to just say yes, because, you know, the oligarchs are still in charge. And a lot of the oligarchs were, you know, suffered where their teachers and mentors suffered under E. So they're not going to say yes, but they don't want to come out and say no. So they pass the buck around to different people in the government. And finally, they say no um, to these local people. And in fact, create a law that says, OK, now you cannot no one can erect a statue in three major cities unless you have permission from the home ministry. So, in fact, it's the efforts by local people that pushes the creation of a national law, right? So we have a kind of uh, bottom-to-up type of story here. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually what happens is a a statue is erected to Yi in uh, Yokohama, but it has to occur at a time when the oligarchs aren't there because they protest this. But then some of the uh, one of the other oligarchs, Okuma, is a fan of Innowske, um, follows a similar career as Innowsky and is also on the outs with the other oligarchs and, you know, kinda of gets tied up into that story. Um and the case with Yokoska is somewhat similar um, you know, Oguri enjoys a boom at, you know, when Yokosuka is celebrating an anniversary. Um, and this has occurred after the Russo-Japanese War, where the Navy is celebrated, you know, as the reason for the victory and Yokosuka being, you know, one of the most, if not the most important naval base. So this is a chance for local people to really push Oguri and say, hey, you know, he's the, one of the founders of the Japanese Navy and, we sh- and he, you know, helped create Yokosuka. So we should celebrate him there, and so there's this kind of commingling of uh, local memory activists, um, local politicians, governor, uh, you know, governor of Gunma Prefecture, and also naval officials who are finally kind of pushing Oguri to the front, and it kind of works in a way for him.
0: So the combination of these efforts to erect a statue of Ogodi, to commemorate him, and also, as you describe um, a little bit later in the chapter, to seek posthumous court rank— for um, some of these losers, actually leads to Ogori's emergence as a hero, right? And you talk about this in the chapter. Now, one of the really fascinating things, especially, again, from the perspective of material culture, that comes out of this story is that there's an argument about not just statues that commemorate these figures, but there Mm -hmm. arises an argument over the location of his head. So can you talk a little bit, speaking of buried treasure, um, can you talk a little bit about his head? What is this argument over his head and what's going on there in terms of the larger argument of this part of it?
1: Right. So Oguri was beheaded, so he has no head um, after he's killed. And the big question is, where is the head buried? Now, there was an effort, you know, according to the oral history, a group of guys go to where Oguri's head is supposedly buried uh, in a nearby city in a temple. And while all of the versions of this oral history agree that, okay, people went out and stole his head, the version that differs is where the head ends up. Do they take it back to uh, Omiya City in what is now Saitama Prefecture? Do they take it back to Gonda, right, in in Guma Prefecture? Um, and so there's this whole argument among memory activists in different locales over who really has the head, because if you possess the head, in some sense you possess legitimacy to talk about O'Gurty, uh, who all of a sudden at this moment is going through a boom at the kind of national level because of Yoposka, etc. Um, and although today, Gunma Prefecture is seen as the place of, okay this is where Oguri's head is buried in the 20s and certainly 1930s it was uh, believed that only a city was where it was buried, and prime minister, at least one of the prime ministers, you know, went to that temple to, you know, pay homage to a et etc.
0: Now, as we move from this to the next chapter of the book, again, we move from um, one particular set of materials, and here you were focusing on um, material culture in addition to other kinds of documents. And we move to looking at post-war popular culture and even new Mm -hmm. kinds of texts that are being used to create and re-narrativize visions of memory around these Meiji Restoration losers. So chapter four looks at um, examples of this post-war popular culture, and it considers how the war years really shifted, as you put it in this part of the book, historical memory and commemoration in Japan. Japan's loss called for, as you show here, a recasting of the Meiji Restoration, and a shift away from what had been a focus on great men, to toward a focus on other kind of more marginal, unnamed um, figures who may not have been emphasized in the past. Now, examples of the literature that came out of this shift are really, really fascinating, and I want to ask you to talk about um, just one or two of them, because they, again, enrich this very um, multi-textual and kind of polyvalent archive that you've created in the book with these various chapters. So one of the sources you talk about here is a source called Priest of the Fumonin. This is Ibuse Masuji's work on the executioner of Oguri. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's going on with that source? And in what way is that important for what you're doing in this part of the book?
1: Sure. Um, Well, Ibu I mean, people, I mean, he's famous for Black Rain and, you know, other things. And this is just one of his many short stories that really isn't famous. But um, he had, what he's doing is he's essentially retelling the story of, an interview conducted by a memory activist, a priest at the Fumonin Temple, who, uh, during the 40s, I believe, um, interviewed the guy who supposedly actually did the decapitating. Um, And so Ibuse is simply retelling the story of that interview. Um, Now, as far as the role of that story in the overall argument of the book, is what happens when Ibuse first writes this story in the post-war, immediate post-war period. It's very much about the priest, uh, Abe Dozan, the priest of the Fumoyin Temple. But as memory activists in Gunma Prefecture start to make a convincing argument that the decapitated head is in their temple, the subsequent versions of this short story and there are four versions, the last written when Ibuse dies, shift away from that priest and the legend in Omiya City, the Kumoyan Temple, and focus more on the Guma side of things. So we see an example here of memory activists who are actually affecting what becomes a kind of national version of one part of this memory. Great.
0: And in a way that really interestingly parallels the shift that you're showing at the level of historiography, right, From away from kind of great figures toward other figures that are marginalized, this chapter is also in a way doing that kind of work by shifting our attention to the short story that's perhaps, as you just put it, not very well known, and also to another film that you're showing is actually central for understanding what's happening here, but is also virtually unknown today. And this is a film called The Birth of tokyo the bell of oedo so would you talk a little bit about that in this context because that also sounds completely fascinating
1: Right. Well, I mean, this was, you know, Shochiku, one of the big uh film, the cinema producing companies, this was supposed to be their big film, the 35th anniversary of Shochiku, and, you know, uh, they put a lot of money into this, and it was supposed to be a big deal, and perhaps it would be in every book on Japanese cinema if it had done well, but it didn't do well. <laughs> um, and essentially, this story is about the transition from uh, you know the Edo period to you know, Meiji Restoration, and it ends with the Meiji Restoration. But it tells that story through the lens of, of Goody, and the, the writers and the producers of this, what they wanted to do is they were saying, okay, you know World War Two is over, um, you know we've been telling the, the great men story of the Meiji period. Now maybe we should look at the losing side, right? Uh, kind of counter narrative to the legacy we all heard during the war years. Um, And so they decide to go for Oguri. And what they do is they go for one of the memory activists and major Oguri biographers, uh, Ninagawa Arata. But his version of Oguri is just so passionate and uncritical that they decide to abandon it altogether and just write their own version uh, of Oguri. And in a way, the story, like a lot of samurai films that focus on losers in the post-war period, it's a way to talk about not simply the transition from Edo period to the Meiji period, but from wartime Japan to post-war Japan, Uh, right? You know, the the occupying forces, uh, the Meiji occupying forces don't end up raping everyone in the city of Edo, can be seen as like, you know, the the same thing ended up happening uh, in the... War to post-war Japan, right? You know, you have the occupying Americans, but things end up being okay. Um, the film was kind of a flop. It, did, you know, it did not receive good reviews, um, even though some of the best actors of the time were in there. Um, part of it was just because Goody as you know, a middle-aged bureaucrat, just isn't as exciting as uh, other figures are. Um, mm-hmm.
0: So you talk, right? Um, so you talk ultimately here. About the fact that Oguri, he, you know, he doesn't become a national hero, right, despite these efforts. Mm-hmm. But, um, he does, his case does give attention. And a kind of renewed attention, a national attention to other restoration losers who had previously been ignored. And you talk later on in this chapter also in ways that I won't ask you to talk too much about, but I'll just mention for listeners who are particularly interested in these issues, um, you turn to focus on the importance of locality, of a 1970s old hometown boom, as you call it, and about the recasting of the relationship between the national and the local as part of this larger story that you're telling you also at the end of this chapter um talk about buried treasure treasure. (laughs) so what's going on Uh, so let's get back to buried treasure because buried treasure um so what's going on at this part of the story with our treasure hunters where do we find them um right now
1: okay so we're we're in the post-war are we in the 90s with the buried treasure
0: right um i think we are before we're we're in the post-war i think
1: okay right Mm -hmm. so um you know, there there's several kind of four time periods when the buried treasure goes through a boom. Uh major restoration period, post war, nineteen nineties, um uh yeah, nineteen nineties, right? And the nineteen thirties, yes. And each of these time periods uh, is going through a crisis, not simply an economic one, which is the one you would think would be associated with a buried treasure boom, right? We all we don't have money anymore, so let's go searching and fantasize about searching for treasure. Um, it's not that case, and, and part of that we can see in the post-war period is there's this almost this kind of you know, psychological crisis, you know, uh, that you know John Dower talks about in embracing defeat, and part of that is just. Uh, searching for a reason to live, I would say. And so um, the buried treasure hunters, the Mizuno family, who had been searching since the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, continue to search in the post-war period. Um, there was a famous buried treasure hunter in the 1930s who also continues to search um right and they they find people who fund them because people are looking for something to believe in, and so you know they continue to search in the in the fifties
0: awesome. And we're going to see them again. We may not talk too much about them again, but right. just mentioned for listeners, this is not the last that we're going to see <laughs> of our treasure hunters. So as we move from this chapter to the fifth chapter, which is the last body chapter before the conclusion, we move to yet another context and this is yet more sources and it's really, really fascinating. So I'm going to ask you to open with um, just talking a little bit about a very unusual object that you open with in this chapter. So you open here um, by taking us into a 2005 festival that marks the 137th anniversary of Oguri's death. Again, we have an anniversary um, being a moment for the renewed interest and in commemoration. And you talk um, about the various people who are at this festival, various kinds of events that happened, but also various objects that were on display. And one of these objects is a screw mm-hmm. so why a screw and can you use that screw maybe to open up um sort of what's happening in this part of the story and what what is the screw telling us about um this festival this anniversary and this part of the history of commemoration of oguri
1: right great um so you know the, the, the way you put it that there, you know the way you put that i put it right <laughs> kind of metalipsis moment here um Yes, that there are different people in this, you know, one location. And they're all part of, you know, what I call uh, the memory landscape, right, which is the, you know, the big clever term that I try to come up with in this book. You know, it's it's the different objects and people and places that are drawn into the commemoration and memory about Okruti. Right, so here we are in 2005, you have people from Yokosuka, who are in Gonda village or in a village that is now, that was, that included Gonda village by the 1990s and and 21st century, uh, people from Yokosuka, uh, relatives, you know, a manga artist who's descended from Oguri, but also the screw, which is supposed to represent Oguri's role in, uh, modernizing Japan. Right. So by this point in the 21st century, um, You know he's being Oguri's being pitched by Oguri activists as the founder of modern Japan. Like like he brought Western style technology uh, to Japan. Not alone. It wasn't just him, but he was one of the major ones because he had the inspiration to build uh, Yokosuka and the iron foundry there because of what he saw in America. Uh, scrap steel and such that he that he holds in his hand this screw, which is an example of that. And there's one local movie about him where you know he's heading back to Japan, looking at the shores of Japan with the screw in his hand. I'm not sure whether that happened or not, but he did bring back a lot of screws and other scrap metal with him. Um, so uh, you know, so he's kind of so we kind of open up the chapter with this uh, memory landscape and the different actors who've been traced throughout all the chapters of the book uh, uh, to this moment and and this screw which is kind of magnified quite literally uh, in importance um, and pitching Oguri's importance as a great figure of Japanese history.
0: And that magnifying glass, I mean, uh, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see this um, image, there's an image in this chapter of the screw that's quite literally, as you just put it, underneath a magnifying glass. And it's this wonderful um, moment that's very much an analogy, right, for how um, oguri, if, if we can kind of imagine the screw as oguri and the magnifying glasses, you know, the various ways into bringing him out into different kinds of focus um, in different parts of this story. I think it's a really wonderful image to begin our ending here, or at least begin the last stage of what will continue to be a story that will, um, I'm sure, continue happening long after um, the events of the book are wrapped up, right?
1: Oh, good. He's a screw. I like that. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> he's
0: our screw, right? Well, yes. our screw. And you talk also in this chapter, for manga fans, um, there's, a, there's a discussion of Kimura Naomi, um, the creator of the first Oguri manga and you talk about that as well. Now you also talk in this part of the book about the ways that the 1990s are actually transforming the way the Meiji legacy was understood and the consequences of that for the kinds of texts that are dealing with Oguri's legacy and dealing with it perhaps in a new way. Um, And you talk here about specifically TV programs and school mm-hmm. textbooks and since this is the first set um, we're encountering these media in this larger memory landscape which is also a kind of media landscape can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that what's happening in terms of his commemoration in TV pro- programs and in school textbooks in this part of the story
1: okay um, well you know as I, as I think about the book one way I could have started the book was to kind of begin at the end with a with Oguri's final inclusion into a nationally used history textbook for high school Japanese history. Um, and when we look at a textbook when there are kind of sidebars and such that we you know, see in college textbooks, um, they, they're quite innocent and innocuous. So we don't really think much about them. And Oguri has such a kind of sidebar in one of these textbooks. But... By the time we get to that sidebar at the end of the book, you, you have this feeling like, my God, you know, this has gone through. You know, this is not just someone decided this, but there's kind of a whole legacy here of conflict and tension that gets him into this textbook. Um, as for TV and textbook in the 90s, well, I mean, the 90s is really, the you know, the decade of memory because it's, you know, the anniversary, major anniversary, the end of World War II. So it's a, globally, it's a memory decade um and it's also for japan another decade for promoting uh localities um uh the promotion done by uh the central government and so local tv local history textbooks uh take oguri up uh yet again within this kind of memory boom in general mm-hmm.
0: So, you talk um, also in this part of the book about the ways that a growing global interest in World War II memory and collaboration is shaping what's going on here. And also, um, I've got to plug the early modern here Um, as a person who studies early modernity. You're also right. Hey, um, teachers for early modern. You're also talking here about a nostalgia for the early modern period. Sure that characterizes what's happening in the 1990s. So for listeners who are and for potential readers or actual readers who are interested in um, these issues of the kind of early modern in the modern, the early modern in the late 20th century, but also the ways that TV programs and TV media are imbricated in this process, you might want to pay special attention to this chapter. Okay, great work. So as we move to the conclusion of our conversation, but also the conclusion of the book, um, there are just a couple of things um, that I want to mention and just ask you to talk about maybe one of them, just in the interest of time. So the conclusion, among other things, shows how um, Oguri, rather, memory activists created and solidified networks with other units, as you're putting it here, that also sought rehabilitation for other martyred men. And so you're showing these networks here between Oguri um commemorators and Tokugawa family descendants, professional historians, various kinds of memory activists. And you take this story and push it forward in the conclusion in ways that really resonate with some contemporary events, some very recent events. You talk specifically about this idea of the memory landscape, or memory memory landscapes in the plural, and the relation to the 311 disaster. Mm. So because that's something that's clearly a very, uh, you, you mentioned it, Explicitly here and it's clearly a very wide interest. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as a way of bringing the substantive discussion um, Perhaps to a, to its conclusion as well
1: Absolutely. Well, in fact, I just gave a paper at AAS a couple weeks ago about this. Okay, oh, so uh, you know in 2011 NHK, you know the main uh, public television in Japan decided to do a year-long historical drama its annual taiga drama uh, for 2013 on something Fukushima related. And of course Fukushima is the location of the former Aizu domain, uh, with the major one of the major domains on the losing side of the restoration. And so in twenty thirteen they they did this uh, <clears throat> tiger drama called Yai no Sakura about a, an Aizu samurai woman and they did the drama quite obviously to send to, to get money into Fukushima. Because wherever there's a tiger drama, the tourism just skyrockets and the profits are huge. Uh, and, you know, tens of millions of dollars have already, you know, been, Fukushima's already profited from that. But, you know, in addition to the money side, there's also this effort to kind of rehabilitate Fukushima's image, right? The idea is that people are supposed to really love Yai, the character, and will associate Fukushima with yai instead of just the disaster, um, and that's when when I submitted the book, I was you know not even a month into the drama. But now that 2013 is over, I can tell you that the, the it was a very controversial uh, drama in many ways because the memory activists in Aizu actually have their version of the Meiji Restoration on display. Um, in the drama, and in many ways, it's a kind of leftist critique of uh, the Japanese government and the Meiji legacy. It's, it's great. It's fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know how long it go on, but we'll just leave it there.
0: Well, Mike, thank you so much for giving um, your time to this for a really wonderfully evocative book and a book that's really a pleasure to read. Now, there are tons of things about the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of really interesting conceptual work, and a lot of case studies that are um, that make for a very rich archive. Again, I'll use that term that you're giving us here, that we only barely scratched the surface of. But is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to mention, but that you'd like to? Mention and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers.
1: Um, things I hadn't mentioned. I can't think of any now.
0: The, the cover's really cool. <laughs> the,
1: the cover, cool. you know, I kind of feel that the cover and the title is the best part. Um, yeah, that's, well,
0: I'll have to disagree with you <laughs> um, for many reasons, but I'll also just mention, you know, buried treasure. So.
1: Yes. Oh yes, yes. And the buried treasure can- story continues. I'm on a British TV. Uh, you know, history channel thing about buried treasure and did a paper on it at a Zizek conference on buried treasure and fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff. Yeah.
0: So that actually brings me to my final question um, is what are you working on now? Now that the book is out, congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you. Um, Thank you
0: are you working on buried treasure as more of a sort of focused topic, or if not, what's inspiring you lately?
1: Well, you know, um, just kind of. Out of accident, you know, there are several things that have branched off from the book, little things like the AAS paper, the GJ conference paper. And there might be other little things that I continue to do on major restoration losers as, as opportunities come up. there well, they're kind of two projects, you know, that are completely different that I've been do- working on for some time. Um, one book project will actually take me back into the early modern. Yes. yes. I'm moving in the opposite direction. People always go, you know, early modern than modern, but I'm going to go back to my roots and, and look at physical culture and male identity and gender and stuff like that. Um, and, and especially through swordsmanship, uh, the practice of swordsmanship in early modern Japan. Um, and also, I might do a book on uh Tommy, this apprentice interpreter on the 1860 embassy who becomes kind of a love fascination for white American women in 1860. Um, yes, uh, Little Yellow Tommy is the uh, tentative title for that And it's actually the name of a polka That was very popular in 1860 I don't know if you follow 1860 polkas But you'll have to trust me on that one Yes, Little <laughs> <laughs> little Yellow Tommy So uh, that's another uh, thing That I've been working on And I hope to get out sometime uh, While I'm alive
0: Well, best of luck on both of those projects, and I'll look forward to talking with you not only about them, but also about the as-yet-to-be-determined history of buried treasure that I'm sure Sure. I'll be able to convince you to to write up as well in all of your ample free time so that we can also read and talk about that, because buried treasure. So, Mike, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations on the book, and best of luck with your new work.
1: Yeah, my God, thank you very much, yes.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.